morning. My name's Dan and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Uh... <laughs> morning, Dan. Oh, morning, church. My name's Dan. Sorry if you're confused. I don't know what that last video looked like, but I might have had a different haircut or something. Different shirt on, no idea. But uh, I'm trying to wear black at the moment. That's my thing. Um, just, I don't know, slimming, easy. Don't have to think too much about it. But I got told that I look like Ricky Gervais over this past week. So uh, I was, uh, I think there's worse people to be told. I, I was, yeah, olden days I was told I looked like uh, Russell Crowe. Then I got told I looked like, what's that guy's name? The guy who's in Step Brothers with the curly hair. Yeah, him. And now I'm Ricky Gervais. So I think there's probably, you, you can track my ebb and flow of uh, my health and uh, age and stuff with that, I think. But I think Ricky Gervais is a step up, so I'm okay with that. Yeah, awesome. Anyway, uh, thinking back to uh, when, I, when I first came to Canada, um, one of the first things I was told in 2004, and I clearly remember this, was I, I was warned that if you drive over the border into Quebec with Ontario license plates, you will be pulled over straight away. And uh, so I was, it was a warning, and I, I actually had more than one person tell me that. And, uh, and, you know, I was kind of skeptical, surely not, but I'd never lived here before, so who was I to say? And so uh, I, was, I was a little bit nervous as well. Um, and then there was that day, of course, where I did cross the border into Quebec and uh, wondering what would happen if I'd have those lights suddenly uh, flashing and uh, sirens and there was no sirens and there was no lights and I kept on driving and still nothing and on and on I went and I quickly found out that at least for me the narrative that I'd been told uh, wasn't true that uh, there was a different way to uh, experience life so I went into the uh, local Tim Hortons and uh, in my in my best French I ordered un double double, s'il vous plaît. And, uh, and I think that they were impressed. And I got the drink that I wanted, which was, uh, which was awesome. And uh, I went through the province, and I was unmolested by uh, the local law enforcement, which was great. Um, but when I was told that if you drive over the border into Quebec, then you'll be pulled over by the police if they see your Ontario police license plates. Then, then uh, I was being told um, a, it was a counter-narrative. It, uh, it, uh, it was a narrative, it was a story, a way of seeing life that conflicted with my experience. This isn't what I saw. And, um, and during the trucker protest, which was so recently, but because of recent world news, it feels like, you know, the world has moved on past that. But, you know, just thinking back a few weeks during the trucker protest, my Facebook feed was awash with counter-narratives. Hands up if you experienced that yourself. Just so many ways to look at this one thing. And, uh, you know, there was someone saying, this here, over here, this is truth. And then someone else would then say, no, if you want to see the actual truth, look over here. And, uh, and then they'd say, no, 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 that's not truth. This is truth. And, uh, and, and, and you know, we were, 
we were pointed to so many different ways of looking at this, so many narratives and so many counter-narratives. And a counter-narrative is an alternative or a contradictory narrative. And sadly, with what's going on in Ukraine right now, there are counter-narratives that Russian media is telling their people one thing, the Western media is telling us another thing, and each is accusing the other of uh, providing a counter-narrative of maybe propaganda. That's what we would, um, what we used to call it. But really, um, the you know the word that we see in the Bible for it is lies, right? Is is that each is accusing the other of lies. So you could actually put the word lie instead of of maybe counter narrative there. Now, when I think of wars. Um, I would be surprised in most wars throughout history if there's not some sort of a spiritual element or an element of the demonic um, where Satan, who's this master manipulator, is literally messing with folks' minds in the middle of it. And, you know, and so we read in the Bible this verse that says, uh, be alert and of sober mind. Your, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that, your fam- that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So that, you know, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of war, I would be surprised if there's not an element of the spiritual, if there's not an element of the demonic. And, uh, you know, and in fact, it's John who, who says of the devil, when he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies, so light, so just as English is my native tongue, it's what comes easiest to me, it's my heart language, so lying is Satan's heart language, it's his mother tongue, it's what comes naturally to him. He doesn't have to work at it, it just comes naturally to him. And Satan is the master of the counter-narrative. He is the one who's working overtime to trying to convince people that his narrative is truth, and he's good at it because what Satan's learned is that the best kind of lie, the best kind of counter-narrative isn't an outright, obviously disprovable lie, but it's one that has an element of truth woven into it. Which is why in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14, Satan masquerades as an angel of light because he used to be one. He used to be an angel of light. He knows how they live, what they do. So there is an element of truth in the lie when Satan masquerades as an angel of light. In the book, The The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis explains that the enemy can exploit even truths to our deception. Okay, think about that. The enemy can exploit even truths to our deception. So as we start engaging with our passage this morning, let's keep in mind this idea of the counter-narrative and let's assume, okay, let's assume that Satan is wielding this weapon of spiritual propaganda on you and I, even as we sit here. Luke chapter one, start, uh, Luke chapter four, starting at verse one says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Let's pray. Lord, uh, 
as we listen to your word, we are engaging in spiritual warfare. Um, help us to be wise. Help us to hear you. Um, help us to be skeptical when we need to. Help us to trust when we need to. Uh, help us to listen to the voices which bring life to our souls. And um, Lord, would you, would you show us how to be wise as serpents and as innocent as, uh, as doves, Lord? We ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. These verses say that when we're following God, um, we open ourselves up to spiritual attack. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And in, th in the 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness, Luke sums up that whole time, one and a half months, he sums up with these words where he was tempted by the devil. So God led Jesus to the desert where he was tempted by the devil. And so if you love Jesus, then you should assume that Satan uh, has a wanted poster with your name on it. That he has marshaled, maybe not all of his troops, but he's marshaled one or two, maybe a small troop of his minions against you. And he's mobilized his misinformation section uh, to confuse you with counter-narratives. Let's just assume that that's happening. But the good news is that all is not lost because we have Jesus. And Jesus shows us how to avoid this minefield of Satan's lies and mind games. So let's study Jesus' playbook. Luke 4 verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Satan's first lie or counter-narrative was self-reliance. He's saying, since, because the word here, if, is, is actually read as since, since you are the son of God, then in this circumstance when you're hungry, the quote-unquote son of God type thing to do is to feed yourself and to look after yourself. You know, the thing that the Son of God would do would be to turn stones into bread. After all, isn't that what God did with the Israelites during the Exodus, during their 40 years in the wilderness? And you can see the links between that narrative and, and the narrative of Jesus. Here, isn't that what God did? He provided for them miraculously. So what should the Son of God do? Well, he should provide for himself miraculously as well. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, with turning stones into bread. But what Satan was trying to do is he was trying to lead Jesus away from relying on God for everything. Which is why Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert in the first place was to learn to rely on God in everything. So, how does that apply into our lives? Well, for us, we don't know where the Spirit will lead us. And the temptation in the desert times of our lives is to shift our pure reliance on him and to start relying on ourselves and our smarts, our resources, our coping mechanisms. And if Satan can convince us that, hey, that's actually what God wants. He wants you to look after yourself. He wants you to meet your own needs. Then it's even better. Because after all, God helps those who help themselves, right? That's what the Bible says. 
That's not what the Bible says. And so Jesus kind of counterpunches Satan's counter-narrative in the face in verse 4. And he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And for us in our desert times, when our earthly resources are dangerously low, Jesus says to us, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, Matthew 6, 25. So do you trust God enough to obey him wholeheartedly as you press on through the desert? Do you believe that God can sustain you? And not just sustain you, but bring you out stronger than you were, stronger in your faith than than you were at the beginning. You see, after 40 days in the wilderness, Luke 4.14 tells us that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit, but he returned from the desert in the power of the Spirit. In John 4, Jesus says this, that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Like how incredible would it be, friends, if we were hungry, if, if we had hunger pangs to rely on God and to live in obedience to him. Because, because obeying God is as good and sustaining to our soul as a three-course meal is to our body. And God's word promises that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. This is a verse to chew on and to get nutrition from and to satisfy your soul with. So Satan's first counter-narrative was self-reliance. But along with Jesus, we know that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. This is what we know. The second counter-narrative that Satan tries to, tried to feed Jesus and tries to feed us is that there are shortcuts to avoid suffering. You see, um, Satan promised Jesus glory and meaning and position and legacy, but without the inconvenience of suffering. Verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Really what Satan's saying is, I'm a nice guy and I want to share my stuff with you. But is it Satan's stuff? No, but sort of. Okay, because what the Bible tells us 
is that Satan's called the prince of this world. Okay, meaning that he has actually a measure of power over this world. Ultimately, it's not his. It is God's. And yet, you see, like I said, Satan's lies are usually not outright. There's an element of truth to them. And so Satan is known as the prince of this world, meaning he has a measure of power over this world. Revelation chapter 20 verse 7 says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. So Satan is released and he's given a measure of power and authority in that moment. And so from this position of limited authority, Satan says to Jesus, I'm going to make it all yours, which is super generous of Satan. What a nice guy. Except for one little detail that God had already given it all to Jesus in the first place. Psalm Psalm 2 verse 8 says, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. But Satan's counter-narrative was tempting because he offered Jesus the world without having to go through suffering. That Jesus could be king without the cross. It was this counter-narrative of the shortcut. Now, I used to get nervous driving through Montreal. Okay, not because I was afraid of the police or the lights or the sirens, but because it was congested and you could get lost in the warren of roads. And uh, but then along came a sort of a bypass highway. And uh, now if we're going down east, uh, we don't have to go through Montreal at all because there's a bypass. And Satan's kind of saying to Jesus that you can get to your ultimate destination, your ultimate goal, and you can bypass suffering at the same time. And this is a counter-narrative, also known as a lie. How do we know? Because Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 says this. This is speaking to, to Christ. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Here's the linking word. Here's the causation word. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Without Christ's blood, we would still be in our sins. His worthiness to open the scroll to usher in the end of time is bound up with the suffering that he had to go through. And so if Jesus had taken the shortcut, if Jesus had avoided Montreal, then the implications for us and our brothers and sisters around the world who are trusting in Jesus for salvation would be beyond thinking. And interestingly, the lie that Satan brought to our Savior is the same lie that he brings to us. That we can get to the good stuff at the end without suffering. That we have this mistaken assumption that God's ideal for us is that we do not suffer. And it's a lie. Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. He says as well, truly, 
I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This, um, this is our promise. We love this. Let's hold on to this. But first comes the suffering. First comes the persecutions. The road to the crown is through the cross. The road to full salvation is through suffering. Acts chapter 14, verse number 21 says, Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This is a counter-narrative to the, just invite Jesus into your heart and you're okay. Right? This is a counter-narrative. This is something else that we're reading and, and that, that, that they're encouraging them. They are, they are strengthening them, not with words that are nice, not with words that soothe the soul, but words that say we must, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And we need to hear that because if we hit those hard times and we've been lulled into this false narrative that you just accept Jesus into your heart and you're okay, then when the, time, when the hard times come, we will fall. But if we're told this, if we're encouraged, if we're strengthened, if we're working, if we're doing those reps, holding on to verses like this, then when the hard times come, we will expect it and we will say, okay, I'm not enjoying this, but it's not a surprise. Strengthening and encouraging. There is no shortcut. As Paul wrote to his mentee, he said, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I don't know if anyone has said to me, join with me in suffering. Walk the way that I'm walking. But that's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. So when faced with Satan's counter-narrative that Jesus could have the glory without the grind or the cross or, or the crown without the cross, Jesus counter-punches Satan in the face and he says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knew that the only route to glory is by worshiping God and serving him only as he trusts God through the desert of suffering. Okay, I want you to listen to this next bit because I love it. Um, in, in verse 5 of Luke 4, which is still the second temptation, we're told that the devil took Jesus, led Jesus up to a high place, which sounds impressive, right? Satan can take Jesus up to a high place and then he shows him, you know, the whole world. Okay, that's what Satan can do. He can lead Jesus up to a high place. But let's listen to where the root of suffering takes Jesus in Philippians 4 verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? The best that Satan could offer Jesus through the way of comfort is a high place. But God's best through the way of suffering is the highest place. And this is where it gets exciting because if you're trusting in Jesus today, this is your destiny too. As we choose to follow Jesus, led, led by the Spirit through the wilderness of suffering, we can claim these words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. This is what everyone can see. This is our reality of suffering. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us, this is our end goal, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, because this is true, we fix our eyes not on what is unseen, because that's a lie that fools us since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal press on through the desert and the third counter narrative The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, there's a lot I could say about these verses, but I'm not going to focus so much on the content of the the verses as to as I am going to focus on what we see Satan actually doing, which is this. Satan here is taking the very word of God out of context, and he's misusing it to further his own goals, right? So first, Satan encouraged self-reliance. Then he offered Jesus a shortcut to glory that uh, avoided suffering. Neither of these worked because each time Jesus has counteracted Satan's counter-narrative with the truth of Scripture, right? Both times Jesus responds by saying, it is written. But now Satan's figured out maybe that if this strategy works for Jesus, then perhaps it will work for him too, right? You know, you you think of an immovable object and an and an irresistible force. And we think of the Word of God as an irresistible force, right? It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. But what can you use to resist the Word of God? What can you use to uh, stand up against an irresistible force? You get the immovable object of the Word of God, and you pit the Word of God against the Word of God. So when faced with Jesus's, it is written... Satan pulls out his own, it is written. Satan weaponizes the Bible against the one who is the word of God, the one who wrote the Bible in the first place. Satan uses scripture against Jesus, which is so sneaky, but absolutely brilliant, absolute genius. You know that that thing I said from C.S. Lewis earlier, that the enemy can exploit even truths to our deception. Well, here, Satan says to Jesus, in essence, your word says that the angels will protect you, so jump off the temple where everyone can see you. You'll fall, and everyone 
will gasp, and, uh, but, the, but then for sure the angels will swoop down and they will grab you and they will lift you gently to the ground in front of all the worshippers in front of the temple and you can say at that moment, Jesus, I am the Messiah. Right? And Satan's probably right. That, that, that could well have happened. That's probably how it would have rolled out. Jesus could have jumped and been an instant celebrity. But remember, as we read through the book of Luke, that Jesus has been very cautious about how he's revealing himself as the Messiah. Because if he's misunderstood as purely a political um, or a savior or Messiah, then the purpose of the cross would have been missed. Jesus knew that he wasn't the type of Messiah who jumps from buildings and is gently lowered to the ground by angels. He's the Messiah who suffers. So if Jesus had jumped and the angels had protected him, uh, Jesus' salvation plan would have gone off track and Satan would have got exactly what he wanted. On the other hand, Jesus could have jumped and smashed to the ground and been killed and Satan would have got what he wanted. So either way, whether Jesus lived or died, if Jesus had jumped from the temple, he would have played right into Satan's hands. And here's why this is important for you and I. If Satan can take scripture and use it to legitimately tempt the Son of God. Okay, this was not water off a duck's back, okay? This was a legitimate temptation that Jesus experienced and had to fight through. And if Satan's able to do this, then how much more can Satan take half-truths or most truths or even full biblical truths taken out of context and use them to derail our faith? And so Jesus' response is, it is said, here we go, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He combats Satan's um, scriptural counter-narrative with Scripture's two, true narrative. And Satan's reali- Satan realizes he's outmatched. And then it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. From our scripture this morning, we see that Jesus went through a desert time, a wilderness time. And we too either are going through a wilderness time, have gone through a wilderness time, or will go through a wilderness time. There is no avoiding the wilderness. But just like Jesus, we can make it through. And I'm not just talking about survival. I'm talking about coming out stronger and wiser and more mature and more filled with the Spirit. But friends, we need to acknowledge that we are under spiritual attack and that Satan's prime method of warfare is to create a counter-narrative, first by tempting us to self-reliance, then by tempting us to take a shortcut that avoids suffering. And thirdly, Satan will even use scripture to try to get us off course from a life of obedience. A short while ago, I said that when we, when we follow God, we open ourselves up to spiritual attack, just like Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit where he experienced real temptation. And it's so important that just like Jesus, we're filled with the Spirit and we're led by the Spirit, that we're not taking one step in our own confidence, but the Spirit is infilling us and leading us. You see, Satan offers to show us the view from the high place if we choose to avoid suffering. But God exalts us along with Jesus to the right hand of God to the highest place as we choose the path of obedience through suffering. 
And just like Jesus, it is as we push through the desert in full reliance on the Spirit that God leads us to future ministry in the power of the Spirit. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. The question is, would verse 14 and 15 have happened? Would it have been true if the desert hadn't come first? 